Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories Podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be hearing from Kai Bird, who, along with Martin Sherwin, won the Pulitzer Prize for their biography, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. The book has since been read by Christopher Nolan and it was that book that inspired the film Oppenheimer. And we'll hear Kai's thoughts on Nolan's film as well as some insights into the writing of the book with his friend and physicist, Martin Sherwin. And of course, I wanted to understand how Kai and Martin had gone about uncovering Oppenheimer's enigmatic character. If you haven't seen the film, don't worry, you still can. It's about to be released on streaming services and, more importantly, as far as I'm concerned, on Blu-ray. But there are no spoilers in this conversation, so you can listen to this before watching the film. Here's Kai Bird. I'm a biographer and historian and uh, executive director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography in New York City. And uh, I'm the author of a number of biographies, uh, including, I guess these days, most famously, American Prometheus, The Triumph and Trials, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And uh, my last book was a biography of Jimmy Carter. Uh, What else? I've also written uh, biographies of a CIA officer who worked in the Middle East. And I wrote a memoir about my childhood growing up in in the uh, very war-troubled Middle East. That book is rather relevant these days. But um, so is Oppenheimer, sadly, because it's all about nuclear weapons and McCarthyism. Okay, so can you tell, it looks to me like there's a thread of, well, what is it, politics? What is it that draws you to these particular stories to write about? Yes, my, my first biography was on John J. McCloy, a not well-known Wall Street lawyer who was essentially the chairman of the American foreign policy establishment. So I've always been interested in sort of how power works in a democracy like America's. And uh, uh, and so I'm interested in the elites and the establishment. And uh, so I wrote a book on McCloy and then uh, McGeorge Bundy, who was a major architect of the war in Vietnam. And uh, then I was persuaded by Martin Sherwin to join him on his project, a biography that he had been working on for 20 years about Robert Oppenheimer, who was also sort of a member of the American foreign policy establishment um, as father of the atomic bomb. But then he was essentially expelled from the establishment in 1954 when he was put on trial for in a security hearing and stripped of his security clearance and such. But anyway, yes, I'm, I'm interested in, in using biography to explain uh, politics and how power works in a complicated democracy like the United States. Okay, so can, can we just go back to the American Prometheus book? You said that Martin had been writing it for 20 years. Why, why had it taken him that long and why did he come to you? Well, he had signed a contract with Alfred Knopf, a major publisher in New York in 1980, to do a biography of Oppenheimer. 
And he sort of caught biographer's disease, which is uh, when you can't start writing because you know there's one more archive you need to visit and there's always one more interview that needs to be done. And, uh, and he became convinced that the story was so important and so complicated uh, that he sort of got mired in the research. He did, you know, off and on, he was a tenured history professor, so he worked on it every year, but part-time. And uh, after 20 years, he sort of realized he was stuck and he and I had become friends, colleagues. And uh, he came to me in, in around 2000 and suggested that I should join him on, on his, my, uh, his Oppenheimer project. And I said, Marty, I, I like you too much to do that. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I did like him. He was a very funny and lovable guy. Um, but, you know, co-authorship is often fraught with many perils. And um, so I, I, I actually hesitated. But he persisted, and and uh, he finally told me, you know, if you don't join me on this, my gravestone is going to read, he took it with him. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that was a persuasive argument. and uh, But it still took us five years to write together the book and get it, get it published. And it came out in 2005, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2006. And then here we are, you know, 18 years later, and suddenly Christopher Nolan has turned it into a major motion picture, uh, which is terrific. I think the film is very good. And I think the film has uh, persuaded a lot of people to go back and look at this biography, American Prometheus, but others, and, and have made people curious about Oppenheimer, but, but also the physics and the history of World War II and the Manhattan Project and uh, the whole role of scientists in, in our 21st century civilization. Mm. I want to get onto that, but can I just ask you about winning the, the Pulitzer Prize? How was that? Uh, well, it was terrific. I, I told Marty at the time, this was in the spring of 2006, that I thought we had a good chance of winning it because looking at the competition, I, I, I thought we had done a very good book. And Marty uh, thought I was an inveterate optimist and naive and that it was never going to happen. But you get a phone call out of the blue one day, usually in April, and uh, you, you don't know that you've been nominated. You don't, you don't know anything. And suddenly you get a phone call saying they've chosen your book for the Pulitzer Prize for biography this year. And, well, you know, it was, it, it was terrific. Um, it brought new attention to the book, and the, we acquired many more readers. And, of course, I think that's one reason why um, the book was eventually turned into a film, but you never know. Does winning the Pulitzer Prize or Christopher Nolan making a film out of your book increase sales more? Oh, definitely Nolan. <laughs> no question. 
Well, the book, you know, has been uh, 18 weeks now on the New York Times bestseller list since July. Right. And it was never on the bestseller list in 2005, 2006. Okay. You know, it sold moderately well and got plenty of good reviews, but it never became a bestseller. You know, it's a 700 plus page biography, and I think it it's a that's intimidating to many readers. And of course, you know, until Nolan came along in this film, I, I think most people on the planet had never heard of the name Oppenheimer. And uh, if they had heard of him, all they knew was that he was somehow associated with being father of the atomic bomb. Those people who had heard of him, I think probably the word enigmatic comes up quite a lot. Right. right. So how did you get to the bottom of who he was and crucially what he thought? Well, Marty had done, you know, 20 years of research. He'd accumulated 50,000 pages of archival documents. He'd interviewed over 150 of Oppenheimer's relatives, colleagues, students, fellow physicists. Um, and, you know, Oppenheimer is uh, an endlessly fascinating figure who is a scientist. You know, he was on the cutting edge of quantum physics in the 1920s studying at Cambridge and then Göttingen in Germany. Uh, but, you know, he was also a polymath and a synthesizer. And, you know, he, he loved, uh, he wrote poetry. He loved the poetry of T.S. Eliot. Uh, he loved the novels of Ernest Hemingway. He, you know, he was widely read. Um, and, you know, he was born in New York City of Jewish ancestry. Uh, but he was raised in the Ethical Culture Society, which was a sort of offshoot, a secular offshoot of Reform Judaism, um, a very intellectual society that had a school, the Ethical Culture School that he attended. Um, and, uh, you know, he goes off to Harvard and then Cambridge to study chemistry and then physics. Um, and he's he's endlessly complicated. Uh, you know, he he's of Jewish background, but in the 1930s he acquires a uh, interest in the Hindu spiritual uh, texts, the Gita, Bhagavad Gita, and so much so that he learns Sanskrit so that he can read the Gita in the original. So this is a guy who's very complicated. Um, he had a, an emotional nervous breakdown at the age of 22 uh, in Cambridge, England. Uh, he went to see a series of psychiatrists, psychologists, um, uh, and he was someone who was, you know, capable of great empathy for other human beings, and yet. Uh, very complicated and he's capable of transforming himself. You know, initially he was a terrible university professor. He couldn't give a lecture, uh, but he learned to do it and he became quite charismatic. Likewise, he was never any, he, he never administered anything 
more than a half dozen graduate students at Berkeley. But then in 1942, he's most improbably chosen to become scientific director of this enormous project, building a secret city in Los Alamos to build the gadget. And he transforms himself into a brilliant administrator, uh, again, very charismatic, and uh, he's capable of inspiring these uh, scientists all with high, large egos, chemists and physicists and engineers, and to come together and work and collaborate on this project to build the first atomic bomb. And they do it in two and a half years. You know, he's, he, Marty and I sort of, you know, even after Marty spent 25 years on Oppenheimer, he was still curious about him, still frustrated with trying to understand some of the decisions that Oppenheimer made. Um, still, you know, he was still a mysterious figure. So uh, we're, we struggled to understand his politics and to try to figure out, you know, was how, just how close he was to the Communist Party. Um, we concluded in the end that the 7,000 plus pages of FBI documents and his FBI file um, proved that he was certainly pink, but not red. Okay. He had never actually joined the Communist Party formally. And this made sense. He, we concluded he was not the kind of intellectual, sort of free-spirited intellectual who would submit himself to party discipline. Um, but, you know, it's a mystery. Uh, he certainly was very close to the Communist Party, gave money to Communist Party projects, like trying to desegregate the local public swimming pool in Berkeley and such. But... Uh, Anyway, he, Marty and I, you know, even after finishing the book, we were still fascinated, still curious about this um, complicated man. So I wonder if you could sit down with him, maybe over dinner. What would you ask him? What, what, what are the questions left that you would like to put to him? Oh, you know, we, Marty and I couldn't understand why this brilliant scientist would uh, tackle an issue in physics like... Uh, exploring the implications in the math of uh, that there <clears throat> of black hole theory, and could sit down and write a very short theoretical physics paper with his one of his graduate students, and he did this in 1939. You know, sort of whipped it out, and then walked away from it. Never. Never studied the issue again. <laughs> Why not? You know, he might have, uh, well, this explains sort of in one reason why he never won a Nobel, because he never spent enough time on any one problem to sort of make it, make it his own. Um, but he dabbled. He was a dabbler, in, and he, he could see... Um, he could see interesting questions and he would address them, but then move on to the next interesting question. But this is, this is precisely why he was a great synthesizer and uh, a 
why he was able to rise to the challenge of transforming himself into an administrator of the Manhattan Project. Um, yeah, but that, so that's why he, why he was able to, but why did he want to? What was, what was his motivation for that? Oh, his motivation was political. You know, he understood uh, f- from having studied in Germany with people like Heisenberg and Max Born that these German physicists were just as capable as any other physicists around the world and himself to tackle this problem. And it was clear from, you know, 1939-40 that from the physics that theoretically it was possible to build a gadget that would have enormous explosive power. And so he feared that the German physicists were already working on this since the war had started in 39 and uh, that they were going to be able to give Hitler an atomic bomb before anyone else. And this would be, this would be a disaster. It would allow Hitler to win the war. Um, So his motivation was as an anti-fascist and, you know, as a loyal American, he wanted to contribute to the war effort. And as a scientist, uh, this was, this is where he could make the most dramatic impact. Uh, but at the same time, he was perfectly aware of the nature of this terrible weapon, and he worried about the implications of what he was building. But, you know, this is, again, one of the sort of mysterious, enigmatic aspects of his personality. He he was aware of the contradictions in what he was doing. He knew he had to do this. And uh, even after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, he never said that he regretted what he had done. He understood that what he had done was inevitable. And, uh, you know, this is actually relevant to our times because uh, it's important for people to understand that you cannot stop science. Human beings are going to forever explore the physical world around them and make discoveries and figure out how things work. Um, So the real question becomes, you know, how do you manage these discoveries? How do you manage technology? How do you regulate it? How do you make it humane? How do you integrate it into uh, a humane society um, and not allow it to get out of control. So I'm thinking, of course, of AI and climate change issues and and the environment. And, you know, these are all issues that we're struggling with as human beings. And, and unfortunately, we're surrounded by science and technology, of course, but um, the average citizen anywhere here in America or elsewhere, nevertheless doesn't seem to understand the scientific quest and the nature of the process and and uh and there's some even suspicion of science and scientists and you can see this most dramatically during the recent pandemic where public health officials were questioned and conspiracy theories rose and and uh the integrity and authenticity of scientific 
you know, the scientific advice, public health advice that was given, you know, scientists and public health officials were struggling to figure out how to respond to the pandemic. And of course, it means experimenting. It means trying to figure out what the facts are. And you have to be able to change your mind. And this is not understood well uh, in among the general population. And that's a that's that's unfortunate. It seems to me that the film certainly is at least in part about politics getting involved in science as well. And does that concern you still? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, Oppenheimer's life and what happened to him is a, a, a major lesson. You know, in, in 1945, he was hailed in America as, a, as the country's most famous scientist. His image was put on the cover of Time and Life. And, uh, and then nine years later, he is literally destroyed in this kangaroo court of a security hearing and humiliated and uh, stripped of his security clearance and disinvited thereafter from university speeches that had been scheduled. And, you know, he becomes, he was once a scientist who was also a public intellectual speaking out about public policy issues. And nine years, you know, in 1954, he was, prohibited from any longer being a public intellectual. And of course, this sent a message to scientists everywhere. You know, beware of getting, speaking out from your narrow lane of expertise because you could get in trouble politically. And so this explains why even today, we do not have uh, uh, major public intellectuals who are respected, who are scientists. Uh, you know, there are just not very many of them. And that's, that's odd, given where we are in a, uh, with a, a global civilization based on science. It's very, it's, very, it's very odd. I mean, the last one I can think of is Stephen Hawking, but possibly was in that sort of... You know, when Stephen right. Hawking said something, it was the news, right? right? But, but there are just a handful of people like that. And, and again, I think the average citizen seems to look at these scientists, even somebody like Hawking, as an eccentrics. How's your physics? Did you have to read up on quantum physics a lot to write this book? Well, I had to bone up on it, yes. But no, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm a biographer. Um, in college, I took a course in physics. It was called Physics for Poets. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was that good? It, it, well, it helped me to fulfill my science requirement in, at college. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't, you know, I can't pretend to understand quantum physics, but I had to learn enough about it to be able to write about it in plain English and uh, hopefully not make any egregious mistakes in describing it. But, and there, there are no, you know, American Prometheus is a long book about a scientist, but there are no, there's very little quantum physics in it and no formula, no math. 
<laughs> so it's a you know it's a book about the man's uh, private life, his his education, his loves, his politics, and uh, his role in as a scientist in society. But there's it's not a book about quantum physics. So. Yeah. I, d- I wonder if you, because you wrote the book, and then um, as I understand it, you went to the set of the film. Do you, do you have a, any insight into so, the storytelling as an author as opposed to the storytelling as a as a filmmaker? Well, it's very different. You know, in seven hundred plus pages, you can get into a lot of detail and description and nuance, um, but. I, as a biographer, I count myself very lucky that Nolan was the director who um, landed on this project because he's extremely um, astute and intelligent and he's interested in science. And uh, he found a way to tell the story, to transform the, the written narrative and really capture a large part of the story on film. It's a long film, three hours, but that's nothing compared to the 720 pages of the narrative in the book. But he captures, I think, you know, the personality of Oppenheimer, the intenseness. Killian Murphy's depiction of Oppenheimer is, is very apt, and he comes across as this very intense, driven, extremely articulate um, young man who's interested in science, but philosophy as well, and, uh, and has uh, a, a, a fascinating relationship with the women in his life, his first love, Gene Tatlock, and then his long relationship with Kitty, who comes... Anyway, Kitty is comes across as a very complicated, um, vivacious, and, and uh, a scientist in her own right, a biologist. And uh, so I think, you know, Nolan was able to tell the story and to convey the the difficulty of what Oppenheimer was doing at Los Alamos in building this gadget. And at the same time, you see him wrestling with the ethical dimensions of what he's doing. And then you see his politics and his, um, the question of his relationship to the Communist Party. And then you see the consequences played out in 1954. With So I was very happy, for instance, that Nolan chose to concentrate a lot on the 1954 trial because that's really the the um, aspect of the story that you know gives the story an arc. It's the triumph and then the the tragedy of his downfall. And that reminds me that you know at one point when Marty and I were in the midst of writing the book in the early 2000s. Marty turned to me and said, you know, you and I wouldn't be spending all these years on this story if it was just a story about the building of the gadget, if it was just a story about the father of the atomic bomb. What really makes it interesting is 
in a human way, as a human story, is how um, vulnerable and fragile Oppenheimer was and the fact that he was tragically brought down after triumphing. And uh, that story is important politically to understand politics in America today, the McCarthyism that Oppenheimer was the chief victim of in 1954, also explains our politics today with Donald Trump and the divisiveness of his brand of politics. It's there's a direct link between McCarthyism and, and the politics of Trump. Right, morality changes across time, right? And it changes across cultures. And you're a, a student of history. When I'm watching the film, it seems really odd to me that we have this juxtaposition of a man, the same man, being vilified for being left-wing and being celebrated for his role in creating weapons of mass destruction which are dropped on two towns in Japan. Is it just me that looks at that and sees that juxtaposition as really odd? No, it is odd. And and that's, yes, a theme of both the book and the film. Um, This contradiction between uh, the man who is creating this terrible weapon and the fact that afterwards he spends essentially the rest of his life not apologizing or regretting what he did, but trying to warn humanity about the consequences and the fact that they need to take control of this technology and regulate it. And and essentially he was making the argument for banning the bomb and uh, creating an international atomic uh, authority that would have sovereign rights to inspect and control any factory, any laboratory, and make sure that people were not building these weapons. Well, his advice was ignored. And instead, the what happened was his worst nightmare. We had a an arms race, uh, an atomic weapons arms race for decades during the Cold War. And we're still living with this bomb. No, Oppenheimer is very complicated. And uh, I like to tell the story I found at one point, you know, I did very little, very few interviews for this book. Marty did most of the research, but in about 2003, I did discover that Oppenheimer's last secretary at Los Alamos, Anne Wilson Marx, was still alive and was living just two miles from me in Washington, D.C. And so I went and interviewed her. And at one point she told me the story of how she was walking to work one day in the summer of 1945. And it was after the Trinity test. And uh, she was walking to work with Oppenheimer and suddenly she hears him muttering to himself, those poor little people, those poor little people. And she stops him and she says, you know, Robert, what are you talking about? And he says, well, you know, we now know the gadget works and now it's going to be used on a target in Japan, and there is no military target large enough other than a whole city. And so the victims are going to be those poor little people, largely civilians, women and children and old men, and you know, not an army. And uh, so he's painfully aware about of what is about to happen. 
So I came back from this interview and told Marty Sherwin this story, and he pointed out very quickly that that must have been the same week that Oppenheimer was actually meeting with the bombardiers who were going to be on the Enola Gay and dropping the first atomic bomb, and he was instructing them exactly at what altitude it should be released and detonated to have the most maximum destructive impact, kill the most people. So here he is doing his duty as such, providing the weapon to the military. And at the same time, he's, you know, painfully, personally worrying about the victims. So that, that's, that's the contradiction. So you have studied poetry for, no, physics for poets. <laughs> right. So at <laughs> the start of the film, Oppenheimer, um, Christopher Nolan has, in quite a poetic way, gone about representing Oppenheimer's understanding, beginnings of understanding of quantum physics. What was your reaction to that when you saw it? Nolan, I think, again, there's there's no heavy quantum physics in the film, but he tries to convey the music, as he calls it, of quantum. And, uh, you know, the film starts with raindrops dropping in a puddle and uh, op, the young Oppenheimer staring at the puddle. And uh, then you see the young Oppenheimer walking through a, Uh, art gallery and standing in front of a Picasso image of a cubist from the cubist period of of a portrait uh, of a woman who's like a a jigsaw puzzle. It's, It's Nolan's attempt to convey the music of quantum, the mystery of, uh, that the smallness of the universe and, uh, and I think he succeeds in, in that. It's, 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 of course, just an analogy, and it flashes by in a, in a moment, but uh, it conveys the mysteriousness of the quantum world, and that's what uh, actually attracted Oppenheimer to uh, the new science. And uh, so I think the film succeeds in that way. Do you find yourself wanting to know more about quantum physics, reading about Oppenheimer? Sure, I do. I, you know, I'm a layman as such, but uh, when I read the newspaper, I, uh, I always read whatever news reports I see about uh, new discoveries with, uh, for instance, these new pictures that were seen of the universe because of the new telescope and and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious, but uh, <laughs> in a very uh, common citizen's fashion, I pay attention, but I, I can't claim to understand the science. Yeah, no, fair enough. Can I recommend physicsworld.com, by the way? It's an excellent resource for this kind of thing. In the film, the conversations between Oppenheimer and Einstein are quite pivotal. How close is that to the reality. The film both begins and ends with the conversations between Oppenheimer and, and Einstein. And of course, 
Those are imagined conversations, but they're not, you know, improbable. Um, they could have happened. And uh, it is true that Oppenheimer at a certain point in Los Alamos was confronted with um, some math that suggested that there was a, a possibility that the Trinity test could ignite the atmosphere. And he did get on a train and come back east and consult a physicist about these calculations because he was worried enough to investigate the possibility. But he did not ask this question of Einstein. He, in fact, was consulting another physicist who, and, and Nolan was perfectly aware of what he was doing here. This is a conscious decision on his part to not introduce yet another character into the film that already had dozens of characters. Um, and so he was trying to simplify the story a bit. And I, I think that was perfectly legitimate artistic license. And instead he had Oppenheimer having that conversation with, uh, with Einstein, a well-known, you know, obviously a very well-known um, scientist who it, there, Nolan wouldn't have to spend any time in the film to introduce him. Um, but otherwise, you know, there, there is another conversation in the, between Oppenheimer and Einstein that is based on uh, reality where Einstein if you recall, comes up to Oppenheimer and asks him, why are you going down to Washington to, to subject yourself to this witch hunt of a trial? You know, if they don't want your advice anymore, walk away. And that conversation actually did take place. And it comes straight out of the book. And that's another example, to my mind, of how brilliantly Nolan was able to capture in the film sort of the key emotional moments of the biography. And uh, so I, 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 I applaud his achievement that, you know, he's transformed the book into something, into a different artistic medium, but he's been able to do it faithfully um, without introducing any egregious historical errors. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, well, are you going to write a book about Werner von Braun for me, please? That would be <laughs> no. <laughs> Someone else is doing it. Um, and no, I'm 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 working on another book, another biography, but it's an entirely different figure, a man named Roy Cohn who uh, was a lawyer who was chief counsel to Senator Joe McCarthy in 1954 and uh, was really a major architect of the whole McCarthy witch hunt era as a young lawyer. And then he moved back to New York. And in 1973, he met a young real estate developer named Donald Trump. <laughs> And he taught Trump everything he knew about how to deal with the press and the law and courts. And he made Donald Trump, he gave Donald Trump a roadmap to his political career. 
he explains the Trump phenomenon. Well, that certainly sounds like another fascinating book from Kai Bird. And if you're interested in this sort of intersection between physics and politics, you might enjoy Bob Creasy's article on physicsworld.com, What the Movie Oppenheimer Can Teach Today's Politicians About Scientific Advice. Also on physicsworld.com, you'll find reviews of the film from the Physics World editors and also my review of the film, which is entitled Beyond the Bomb, The Life and Times of J. Robert Oppenheimer. I'd like to thank Kai Bird for not only writing the book, but also for joining me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. And I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Physics World.